I want to invite you to have your copy of Scripture open to Psalm 32 as we read together this portion of Scripture, and I know you're going to find it a great help to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And here, a mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or else it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright. In heart, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as I've already noted, this psalm is one of the seven penitential psalms. It is the second penitential psalm, and we don't know the precise background of this psalm. That, that makes certain psalms difficult when we don't know what the historical context was. We can still do justice to the language of it. We know the life of David. We understand the situations that David found himself in, and so we could conclude that this psalm uh, could have been written at any number of times after David had had a uh, experience a great fall into sin and some, some sin that particularly plagued his conscience and weighed him down. And yet there is a long-standing tradition, and there's good reason for us to believe that this psalm is coupled with Psalm 51 and was written after David's sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, one of his mighty men, and, and David had been forgiven. He had finally confessed his sins. Remember, for a, a period, almost a year, David had not confessed that sin. He was living in egregious, unrepentant sin. He had premeditated the murder of one of his best friends, one of his closest confidants, a man who had given his life to defend David when David was in the gutter. He had taken his wife, he had committed adultery, he had premeditated his murder, and then he went on living as king over God's people until the child was born, up until the point when the child would be born from the adulterous relationship. And so for nine months to a year, perhaps, David had lived in open, unrepentant sin. And the prophet Nathan, you know the story, came to him, told him the story about the man with the little ewe lamb. He, he cut David to the heart, as it were, until he finally said to David, you are the man. David says immediately, I have sinned against the Lord. And there's not a verse between David saying, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan the prophet saying, the Lord has put away your sin. 
Now, we like to focus on the consequences in Reformed churches because we want to make sure everybody knows there's consequences for sin. There are severe consequences for sin, but there is not a verse between David saying, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan the prophet saying, the Lord has put your sin away from you. Now, remember in Psalm 51, David had shown us how to repent, how to confess our sins, what a broken spirit and a contrite heart looks like, what one hoping in a cleansing sacrifice sounds like when he or she is praying in brokenness over the rebellion. And then there's a turning point where David recognizes the Lord uh, will forgive him and that there's going to be restoration. And David says, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted unto you. Now, commentators, and and there's a long tradition here, believe that Psalm 32 is the outworking of that. David said, then I will teach transgressors your way. Here, David is doing that very thing. He's been restored. He's been forgiven. He's, He's realized the gospel blessings that are his despite his sin. And now he is saying, let me tell you, let me, let me instruct others who are like me, sinners. Because all David speaks about himself as, in one sense, in this psalm, is a sinner. And he's going to instruct us now. Now, David does five things in this psalm. He first makes a declaration. You'll see that in verses 1 and 2. He then makes a confession. He then speaks of forgiveness. He then talks of God's protection and then God's instruction. He makes a declaration. He makes a confession. He explains forgiveness. He then talks about protection, and then he gives further instruction. And that there is a, there's a flow, there's a process in this psalm that flows from that declaration, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. All the way to the end of the psalm, David is showing us the process by which those who have fallen are to return to the Lord and be restored and built up and guided in him all by God's grace. Um, The declaration, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, there's actually only two psalms, there's only two psalms in the whole Psalter, that start with the words, blessed is the man, or blessed is the one. There's only two, this one and the first psalm. Now, the first psalm is speaking about the blessedness of the man who is covenantally faithful to God. This is the man that meditates day and night in the law of the Lord. He doesn't walk in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. He is a covenantally faithful man. And he is in a state of blessedness. Here, David is speaking of the blessedness for one who has been covenantally unfaithful. Isn't that astonishing? Here he's saying, there is one who has been covenantally unfaithful and yet is in a state of blessedness. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, there, there, are, only, there are only one kind of people on the face of the earth who are blessed in a state of blessedness, 
It's those whose sins have been forgiven. Um, I worked at a restaurant 18 years ago. I was a new Christian. Everybody else in the restaurant was decidedly not a Christian and made that very clear to me as a new Christian, even when I didn't ask them to. And um, there was one who was extremely hostile. He was probably arguably the most hostile. He would take, um, he would take big uh, candle stands that looked like goblets and make fun of taking the Lord's Supper in front of me. And, um, but he would stand at the door at the back of the restaurant as people left the restaurant. Every day I remember this, and he'd say, have a blessed day. I thought, how strange, somebody that hates Jesus so much, telling people to have a blessed day. Well, if you are a man or a woman and your sins are forgiven every day, you are in a state of blessedness. David is making that great proclamation, blessed, blessed, yes, happy, yes, richly rewarded, but in a state and condition of blessedness. Now, um, Augustine, the great uh, early church theologian, wrote a massive six-volume commentary on the Psalms. It's incredible. If you, if you are looking for something theological and devotional, I would highly encourage Augustine's commentary on the Psalms. And, and in the first verse of this Psalm, and Augustine had a particular love for this Psalm. In fact, uh, it was said that on his deathbed, um, Augustine asked uh, that this Psalm be inscribed on the wall next to him so he could just read it over and over and over. That's how rich this psalm was to Augustine. And these are the opening words of of his meditation on the first two verses of this. He paraphrases it and says, Blessed are those people whose sins have been consigned to oblivion. Isn't that powerful? Whose sins have been consigned to oblivion. They have been totally forgiven, covered, cleansed, removed, Oblivion. They've been taken out of the way. Now, the Apostle Paul is going to pick up on these two verses in Romans 4. Uh, Luther's going to call this one of the most Pauline psalms in the Psalter, um, because when, when the Apostle Paul wants to explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from any works, in the Old Testament, he goes to these two verses. He says, look, Abraham was justified by faith alone, and just as David said, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the doctrine of justification. This is the non-imputation of sin. Now, you have to listen carefully to this. I, I think one of the one of the oversights, perhaps, of the church certainly in America, but even throughout church history, is our lack of really understanding the doctrine of the non-imputation of sin. So we in the Reformed Church love to talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, which is everything. We love that. John Murray said, no hope without it. No hope without the active imputed righteousness of Christ. And, 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 and we fight for that. That's a die-on-the-hill issue. So, children, if you grow up and find a church, find one that preaches the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. But on the back side of that is the non-imputation, the non-imputation of our sins to ourselves. Now, impute is a banking term. It means credit. 
It's God has a ledger open, and there's, there are columns. And, and when I think about all my sin, and there's a lot of it in my life, and there's a lot of it in your life, um, all of that should go on my column on Judgment Day. All of that should be on my column. It should be credited to me, imputed to me. But in the gospel, the blessed person, God takes their sins and he imputes them to Jesus so that they're not imputed to you. And Jesus takes the wrath and the judgment for all your sins and my sins, and, and they, are, they are imputed to him. They are not imputed to us. Uh, it's one of the most comforting doctrines in Scripture. Blessed is the man. Notice, it is, it's explicitly taught. Notice verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts, counts no iniquity. How, how, how can that be? How can the Lord not count my sin against me because he counts it against the Son? My best friend, when I was a young Christian, was helping me understand these truths better. And he said, you know, later in the Psalter, there's that great verse, I believe it's Psalm 130, uh, maybe it's Psalm 103. Uh, if you, O Lord, marked iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But it's, it's not that God doesn't mark it. He marks all of our iniquity. He marks it all, but he doesn't mark it against us. Because if he did, we couldn't stand on Judgment Day. No one. I want you to think of the sweetest, most lovable Christian you know. He or she would go to hell forever if one sin was marked against them on Judgment Day. Just one. Forever. But God in the gospel does not impute the sins of believers to them because prospectively he's saying they're going to be imputed elsewhere and dealt with elsewhere. Now, that's the declaration. Um, I want us to consider the confession secondly. Notice David gives that opening declaration, and in that declaration, he is also giving a confession, isn't he? He uses the threefold terminology for sin, right? He, he goes back to the way God had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus, and remember when Moses asked to see God's glory, the Lord said, I'm not going to show it to you, but I'm going to pass by you. You'll be in the cleft of the rock, and, and, and you'll see my hinder parts, whatever that means. And the Lord says when he passes by, the Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, God, gracious and merciful, uh, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving, iniquity, transgression, and sin. He uses that threefold description. Each of those words, each of those words carry different ideas. Um, transgression means to cut across, to break the faith, to go against, to go against God's law, to go against God himself. Um, iniquity. Iniquity is deviation. It's, it's deviant behavior. Um, sin is guilty perversion cutting across, missing the mark. All these words are carrying ideas to help us understand how deep-dyed we are as sinners. And David is acknowledging that. He's saying, this is how we ought to think about ourselves. 
Um, John Newton, on his deathbed, they asked him, you know, you've had this amazing life, and what, what, what have you remembered the most? He said, I remember two things, how great a sinner I was, I am. He actually said, how great a sinner, sinner I am, and how great a Savior Jesus is. That's how a Christian thinks about himself or herself, a true believer. And David's going to talk about the confession. He's already built that into his opening verses. And then notice he, he, he says that uh, he kept silent for a time. He acknowledges that period where he wasn't confessing what he was. He, he had deceived himself into thinking he was okay. He was presuming on God's grace, as it were. He was not going to the Lord in, in desperation and soul affliction, which he, of all people, at that point should have been doing. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away that his sin even had an effect. I don't think this is metaphorical. I think David's sin had an effect on his body in some way, that it was weighing down on him uh, the guilty conscience he had, that it was eating him away. He was aging over it, as it were. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He knew, and yet he hadn't gone and confessed. There is a... um, there's a warning there for us that it is altogether possible to know that you've done wrong and not go to the Lord and ask him to forgive you, and yet to live with that, what the Puritans used to call the gnawing conscience. It's a terrible thing. I've known it. It's a terrible thing. Um, and yet David is going to give us hope. He's going to explain why confession is such an important thing. He says, day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. By the way, all those sailors, he wants you to think about that. He doesn't want you to just rush on, but he, he wants us to meditate about the, the awful effect that unconfessed and unrepented sin has on us internally. Now, notice this. There's this sudden change now, verse 5. He says, he's going to tell us three things. By the way, he told us three things about sin. Now he's going to tell us three things that he did with his sin. The first was, he kept silent. Now he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my sin to the Lord, and you forgave the sin of my iniquity. So, so David first kept silent. He wasted away. Then secondly, he finally came to acknowledge it and say, look, I have sinned grievously against the Lord. So acknowledging what we are, acknowledging what we've done is the first thing. See, David said, I did not cover. It's very interesting. This psalm is profoundly beautiful. David warns us against the danger of trying to cover our sin. And, and Augustine says, ironically, before the only one who can see all things anyway, which is ironic, isn't it? We cover our sins before the all-seeing eye of God who knows and sees everything. But the one who covers wastes away but the one who confesses, acknowledges, and then confesses, God covers their sin. Isn't that amazing? Look, I don't need to know anything about anybody in this room. I know that every one of us is a rotten sinner, and I'm the most rotten, and every one of us wants our sin covered, and that's going to happen one of two ways. Either we're going to try to do it, and it's going to end horribly, or we're going to acknowledge and confess it, and the Lord is going to cover all of it for all of eternity. 
oblivion. He's going to cover it forever. Isn't that awesome? He's going to cover it with the righteousness of Christ. He's going to cover it with the blood of Jesus. He's going to He's going to wash it away. I love the way the prophets, when they try to use the imagery to explain what God has done with our sin, and we use these verses in our assurances of pardon, and Micah says, you will cast all our sins behind your back into the depths of the sea. And Isaiah says, you've blotted out, you've blotted out like on a ledger with ink, you've blotted out our transgressions. And, and the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, they never meet. Beware of anybody who tries to trick you. East and the West just keep going. I know we're on a globe. I get it, but they just keep going. That's the point. Your sins as far away from God, the only one who sees and knows all, the righteous judge of all, the one, the only one who can deal with you according to your sin, puts them away. He covers them when we acknowledge. Notice, David said, I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, that means, believer, when you are weighed down with a gnawing conscience, and you've sinned for the umpteenth time in something that you hate, but you continue to struggle, you go back to the Lord in brokenness, and you acknowledge that the God we go to has said, he is faithful and just. He would be unjust if he didn't. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He would be evil if he didn't forgive you and cleanse you when you confess your sins because he's already punished your sins on his son. That's, that's marvelous. And you know, so much of the Christian life is fighting to believe that. So much of the Christian life, I know is true for me, is fighting to believe that because if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, no doubt, have had struggles. Am I really forgiven? And David gives us that emphatic statement, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You know, someone has put it this way, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and, but I want you to think about this. If guilt is the gift that keeps on giving, then the blood of Jesus is the gift from God that keeps on cleansing and covering. Isn't that awesome? The blood of Jesus never stops. Your sins are already forgiven, legally, judicially, through the one offering of Jesus forever. When we pray for confession, when we pray for forgiveness, we're praying for the paternal forgiveness of God. We're, we're praying for renewed communion with God. We're praying for renewal in our relationship. But all of our transgressions, the Bible says, they've already been blotted out. We're not waiting for Jesus to come and deal with our sins. They have been dealt with. And there is a fountain open in Zion for cleansing for pardon. You know, there's a verse in uh, the Proverbs It says, the righteous may fall seven times, and I don't think he means just seven. He means over and over and over. Yet the Lord upholds him. What's the point of that? One old Puritan, Robert Dingley, said, to fall seven times presupposes that you've been restored six. <laughs> Do you get it? You can't fall seven times unless you've been restored in between, and that's how the Lord deals with us, and that's why confession unto renewed forgiveness is so important in the Christian's life. 
um, Spurgeon going back to the opening verses and, and reflecting on this said, non-imputation, the non-imputation of what is properly mine, is the very essence of pardon. It's the essence. That's why God forgives us. He's already imputed it away from you. Jesus is the scapegoat. Don't you love that imagery that the priest takes the two goats and puts the sins of the people on the goats, and one of the goats is sacrificed, and one is sent out into the wilderness, and both goats represent the Lord Jesus. Both of them are types of Christ. He is both the offering, but he is also the one that carries the sin out away from the presence of God for all eternity. Isn't that awesome? God smells in the Old Testament. His, the word for anger and nose are the same Hebrew word, and oftentimes it it perhaps reflects that when a bull, his nose would flare up in anger, righteous anger, of course, with the Lord, that, but, but when the Bible says he smells the aroma of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, when the Lord smelled the aroma of Noah's sacrifice, there was peace. When he, when he looks on the sacrifice of Christ, there is no more wrath for you who are in him. Now, um, this is an encouragement for us to be quick to acknowledge, confess our sins, and receive the free, undeserved, pardoning mercy of God every day of our life. Every day. If we ever get to the point where we're not doing this, we're in a bad place we ever get to the point where we don't think we need to do this, we're in a very dangerous place. Um, actually, David says at the very beginning, blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit. Well, what does he mean there? Well, he doesn't mean you never, I mean, all, all of us live deceitful lives. We're sinners. Sin is deceitful. Um, David's saying the deceitful person is the person that's deceived themselves into thinking that they're not sinful. Augustine actually says he's reflecting on the contrary. The one who is not blessed is the self-righteous person who will never acknowledge their sin, just like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm not like these sinners. I'm, I'm, I fast. I pray. I go to church. I go to conservative churches. I vote politically conservative. You know, I had a friend who said to me, he said, you know, most conservative professing evangelicals would be happy if their daughter married a Pharisee because they were, fiscally con they were fiscally responsible, they were socially and religiously conservative. That's a scary thought. But a Christian acknowledges our sin, what we are, deep dyed in the wool sinners. And we go to the Lord confessing it, crying out for his pardon and then receiving it from him. Now, very interesting. Uh, David is going to encourage a seeking of the Lord in verse 6. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. There may be a time when God will not be found by you. That presses the urgency of these things. Uh, today is the day of salvation. Strike while the iron's hot. Don't forego confession of sin. Don't don't neglect crying out to the Lord who pardons. 
And then notice what he does. This is fascinating. He says, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Now, now David talks about the protection he knows that the Lord is to him and, and the safety that he has in the Lord, the spiritual safety, but even deliverance is physical. And David has this confidence that the Lord is his protector, and, and the question we ought to ask is, how does David go from speaking about his own sin and the aggravation of his sin and his silence and, and, and the, 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 uh, that whole issue until he was forgiven to now having such great confidence that God would protect him? And I think the answer is simple. If the Lord would do the greater thing of forgiving your iniquity, he'll do the lesser thing of protecting you when you're surrounded with troubles. Isn't that a great thought? If the Lord will do the greater thing of forgiving you, certainly you can be confident that he'll do the lesser thing of protecting you. Um, I've always been struck by Psalms like this, Psalm 3. Absalom is chasing David, and David says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. This is David post his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Can you imagine that the plaguing of the conscience that David, knowing he had murdered Uriah, would have potentially done to him every day of his life, and yet he can say, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. The same God he said, against you and you only have I sinned, he can say, you are a shield about me, my glory. So when you're forgiven, there is a confidence that the God against whom you have sinned is for you. God is for you. Who can be against you? It's Christ who died, is even risen. Now, the final section is the instruction. I just briefly want us to consider this together. We've seen the declaration. We've seen the confession. We've seen the forgiveness. We've seen the protection. And then there is, at the end of this process, the instruction. Um, the Lord now speaks very clearly in verse 8. This is God speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule that need bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. What does, what does a redeemed and forgiven individual do once they have returned to the Lord, confessed their sins, embraced with confidence that he is for them, they need to be instructed by them all the days of their life. God doesn't leave us to try to figure it out on our own. He constantly sends his word out. That's why Lord's Day worship is so important, why reading the word is so important. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will keep my eye upon you. And there is a warning. Don't be difficult. Don't be like a horse or a mule that need to be forcibly turned or else they will not go to God. Um, we ought to love sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word. We ought to love being under the ministry of his word and worship. I know you do. We should love that. God is instructing us. He's teaching us. He's directing us. He's making straight paths. I love in Psalm 23 where it says that the shepherd of Israel, uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
And Ezekiel says, even if somebody's a fool, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, even a fool who walks on the highway of holiness will be safe. (laughs) Well, we're all fools, but God leads us in right paths. He instructs us and directs us. Don't fight against that. Be easy for him to instruct. Receive his instruction. And then notice, David gives the two outcomes. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, this is probably the greatest way to end this psalm. He starts with what he is. He talks about the affliction of his soul when he was silent. He goes through the whole process, and then he ends by saying, you know what the blessed man or woman should have in his or her life? Joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Shout for joy. All you upright in heart, shout for joy. The best way for us to respond to the truth that our sins have not been imputed to us but have been imputed to Christ is for us to shout for joy to the Lord. And that shows that we believe what is true about that. I hope that this will encourage you. I I hope that you'll be encouraged this week ahead to... Um, to take an inventory of your life, areas where maybe you know there's sin and you've been silent, and go to the Lord and acknowledge and confess it and embrace the fact that he's already put your sin on his son. Uh, Maybe you've never gone to the Lord. It's possible. Maybe you've never gone to the Lord. David says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Um, today is the day of salvation. Go to him freely. And then I would encourage us as a congregation that we would be eagerly seeking to be joyful people who love shouting to the Lord for joy for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have forgiven us We thank you that you have not imputed our sins to us. We thank you, Father, that you have imputed our sins. You have credited them to your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly laid down your life and became sin for us. We thank you that you have covered our sin, that you have imputed your righteousness to us. Oh God, would you make us a people who readily confess our sins, a people who joyfully accept the forgiveness that is ours because of what you've done? And would you make us a people who eagerly want to be instructed by you? Father in heaven, would you please give us grace to that end? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.